Well, good morning again. Uh, last week we started a, a short series of sermons looking at stories of someone who meets God face to face. And uh, this week we're going to look at God's meeting with a farmer named Gideon. So I'm going to read from Judges 6 for us, verses 11 through 24. It's printed in your order of worship. You can follow along there. Uh, you can also follow, follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Judges 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock, this rock and pour the broth over them, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, you know uh, exactly the place where every one of us who are here this morning find ourselves. You know the, the weeks, the days, the mornings that we have come from. You know those of us here this morning who are hungry and thirsty and ready to hear from you. You know those of us who are here this morning who aren't sure even why we're here, who don't necessarily want to be here. You know those of us this morning who have faith and those of us who don't. You know those of us who are suffering. You know those of us who are doing relatively well. 
And so we ask, Father, that you would meet us by your Spirit and you would show us your grace, that you would use this word that we have read to show us the word that bears our flesh, who is seated at your right hand, praying for people like us right now. Show us Jesus' grace and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, in elementary school and in junior high, every recess began pretty much the same way. It began with two kids picking teams uh, for some game that we were about ready to play. Uh, now, I polled my kids this week, and it appears that that is a practice uh, that is fading somewhat. Only one of my three girls can remember picking teams at recess. I don't know what to make of that, but I do know that that's all that we ever did on recess, pretty much, and it was always the same. It was nerve-wracking and grinding, sometimes exhilarating, and often demoralizing. My guess is that you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you have fond memories of the picking of teams at recess, it's probably because you were good at sports and you usually got picked in the first handful of rounds, or maybe uh, you were the king or queen of the hill. Maybe you were one of those kids that was automatically chosen by some kind of instinctual groupthink to be the team captain. Maybe you were the best. Maybe you were always the picker and never the picky. And you people know who you are. But I think most kids dreaded the picking of teams because there is nothing on the playground that could expose you more than that. The slow, sometimes excruciating process by which your peers literally ranked you according to your perceived value. From the best to the worst, from the valuable to the extraneous, from the first to the last. Sometimes it was painful Maybe for some of us it still is. And I bring this up because in that story that we just read together, Gideon identifies himself as the weakest and the least. He's the guy that gets picked last. I mean, by every human way of looking at things and reckoning things, he is an incredibly unlikely candidate for much of anything let alone uh, to be the guy who delivers his people from seven years of economic devastation at the hands of countless marauding tribal invaders. But God meets Gideon face to face. And in the kind of reversal that flies in the face of every human way of looking at things, he picks Gideon for his team. And not only does he pick him for the team, not only is he the first one picked, he is the only one that is picked. And if we have the ears for it, church, we can hear the sweet strains of music floating over from a kingdom that is nothing like we expect and full of everything that people like us really need. So the story starts with a pretty amazing scene. The angel of the Lord shows up and sits under a terebinth on the property of this guy named Joash. Meanwhile, just a few steps away, Joash's son Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now that is a great setup, but in order to know just how great it is, we need to have some context. We need to know what's going on. This 
story takes place in the period of time for God's people after they had settled into their own land, but before they had their first king. Sometimes we call it the time of the judges. Now, the judges weren't judges like we think of judges. They were civil leaders. They were military leaders. Some of them were okay, and some of them were absolute nightmares. And while there's a lot of things that you could say about this period in the history of God's people, it's safe to say that the baseline was that it was tumultuous and violent, and it grew increasingly worse. And this was true mostly because once God's people had settled into the land, they had become very comfortable. Slavery was a distant, distant dream to them. The wanderings were over. The conquests were behind them. And so now they were just getting along in life in a good land. And as a result of that comfort that they felt, the God upon whom they had once been so dependent, the God on whom they had pinned their deepest hopes and longings had moved from being the organizing principle of their common life to an add-on in their common life. He had moved from being everything to just being an option, and for some of them, just one option among the competing options that were out there. I mean, if you wanted to try having a God from time to time, then Yahweh was at least worth a look at certain occasions to meet certain ends. That's the situation, and I suppose there's a chance that it seems a little bit shocking to us, right? It's like they turned on a dime once they got comfortable. God had done so many astounding things for them, things they could not have accomplished on their own. He had delivered them from slavery. He had set them into an incredibly good place. And now they have just relegated him to moments of convenience. But really, it's only shocking, I think, if we are not uh, in tune with the pull of our own hearts. There's a direct correlation between the sense that I have that I'm in control of stuff and that I have things all together and things like my dependence on God and my life of prayer. And I wish I didn't have to say it, but it's an inverse correlation. The more that I live under the fantasy that I am in control, then the less that I feel that I need God and the more I let the organizing principle of my life be me. Whatever I think is good, whatever I want, whatever I think's best. And this leads invariably to all kinds of disorder and running after lesser loves and sadness and frustration and pain for the people around me. And for those of us here this morning who can relate, I can say that the antidote to this way of being is to remain. It is to abide in our first love. The one who loved us when we were exceedingly unlovely, the one who continues to love us despite our infidelity. The antidote is to order our lives around Jesus and to follow him not only when we are desperate, but also when we are okay. People like us abide in Jesus through the means of grace, through scripture, through prayer, through the sacraments, through worship, and through life together. 
And I think that last one, life together, is really important. (laughs) Really important, especially when it comes to this notion of control and suffering and pain. (laughs) I mean, you may not be suffering right now. You may not be in trouble. You may not be going through something desperate right now. But I guarantee that you know someone who is probably just a few pews away, maybe sitting next to you. And if we move towards pain, like Jesus did, if we move towards suffering, like Jesus did, if we enter into the lives of those around us, we will, church, be much less likely to forget how desperately we need to abide in Jesus. We will not forget. But this is not, of course, where God's people are on the day that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Instead, they're at the end of seven years of economic devastation at the hands of nomadic tribes whose sole strategy was the displacement and the destruction of God's people by laying waste to their land and to their livestock. It was a horrific strategy for war, and it was incredibly effective. At the beginning of the chapter that we just read from, the narrator of the book tells us that God's people were brought low because of the Midianites, literally that they were made small by them. They lived in fear of them, hiding in dens and in caves. And that has been Gideon's life for the last seven years. Brought low and hiding and cowering in fear. That's why he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which was essentially a hole in the ground. I mean, normally you would thresh wheat on a threshing floor with a sled, but if you did that these days, you'd be seen and you'd be overrun by the Midianites. So Gideon is hiding what little he has. He's just this scared farmer threshing out his family's tiny crop in a hole in the ground. (laughs) And then God shows up and says... The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) I find this beautifully absurd. I mean, Gideon is cowering in a hole. It's hard to imagine someone less mighty. It's hard to imagine someone less valorous than Gideon. How in the world does God see this in him? And why in the world would God ever say this to him? And it's that divine absurdity that opens our ears to the kind of music church that changes us. Now Gideon, for his part, is just fixated on the first part of the sentence. The Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. Now it's clear that God is in some way concealing his identity in the ordinary. That The text here modulates between calling him the angel of the Lord and the Lord. Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. God is somehow concealing his identity in the ordinary. He appears to Gideon as just some guy, and he furthers this concealment by talking about himself in the third person. The Lord is with you. It's more true, of course, than Gideon could possibly know, but that's not how he takes it. He takes this as a comment on the national situation, on the the situation that they find themselves in. And he disagrees with this guy, and he responds with a question. Please, sir, he says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds? But now the Lord has forsaken us. 
Now, I don't know if Gideon thought he knew the answer to that question. Why has it happened? I don't know if he thought he knew the answer before he asked it. I don't know if he meant it sarcastically. I don't know if he meant it ironically or rhetorically. I don't know if he really wanted to know. But as readers of the book, we have at least one answer to that question, that the nation's current suffering was a result of their unfaithfulness to the very first of the Ten Commandments, don't have any other gods before me. They had run after other gods, and the result was as predictable for them as it is for us. This disordered jumbled common life that casts off a sense of holiness and otherness and that descends into chaos and trouble and fear and exploitation. Gideon says God has forsaken us and there is the irony. They're not suffering because God had forsaken them. It is precisely the opposite. They are suffering because they had forsaken God. And yet, and yet there God is. And it's clear that this suffering is not outside of his control. And this is one facet of the complicated, and I would say true to the lived out flesh and blood experience that you see all over the place in the pages of scripture when it talks about suffering. They have pulled this thing down onto their own heads. But God is using it to do all kinds of things. Not least of which is to awaken longing in them and to draw them back to him. And I think people like us, church, we have something to learn from this. Our impulse when we suffer, aside from wanting our suffering to be gone as quickly as possible... Our impulse is to draw straight lines between cause and effect. And we do this so that we can get at the cause and mediate it and control it and manage it. And sometimes you know that works. And you know probably that other times it absolutely doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the mysteries of our suffering and our pain are too great. The picture of where they fit is too big. And to imagine that we can somehow pin down our suffering and our pain, to imagine that we can see the full anatomy of these things and understand all of the reasons behind them so that we can master it, it's futility. And if you've ever really suffered, you know it's true. But the good news for you and for me is that that futility that we feel is not the end of the story. If we're followers of Jesus, if we follow after Jesus, then we are united to a God who suffers both for us and with us. And our suffering is caught up into his redemptive suffering for us. This is how the Apostle Paul says it to his friends in Corinth. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we sang just a few minutes ago, our pain will not be wasted. And that means that our suffering as God's people does not end in futility. It works in us to produce endurance and character and the kind of hope that will never put us to shame. And believing that that is true and living into the truth of it will change not only the way that we live with suffering and pain, 
It will change the way that we walk with those around us who are in suffering and pain. And I think that that is about to happen to Gideon. God is about to use the suffering of this beaten down, frightened farmer to work the redemption and the comfort of an entire nation. So God doesn't wade uh, into the tangle of Gideon's question, why has all of this happened? Because, in fact, Gideon is the solution to the problem. (laughs) This is what God says to him. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? To which Gideon replies, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I don't think at this point yet he is addressing God as God. I think when he uses that term, Lord, it's, it's a, an, an address of respect. But I do think that at this point it has to be true that Gideon is wondering what in the world this conversation is really all about and who is he really talking to. If it hasn't been weird up to this point, it is certainly starting to get weird. And here is the reason that Gideon gives to this guy who is God for his inability to save Israel. He says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Manasseh wasn't exactly prominent among the 12 tribes of Israel. Gideon figures this is a given for the guy that he's talking to, but he also wants him to know that his family isn't all that either, and the icing on the cake is that he is pretty much a nobody in his own family. I'm just the guy they send out to this hole to thresh wheat by himself. I get picked last. So while this has been a flattering conversation, you have mistaken me for someone else. (laughs) You definitely have the wrong guy. And church, this is when we need to hear the echo of that gospel lesson that we heard this morning. If anyone would be first. He must be the last of all. This is Jesus, of course, who knows firsthand about what it means to be last, teaching his followers about what his rule in the world is really like. It is upside down and it is backwards all at once. You come in like a little child, you come in like the last and the least and the weakest of all, or you do not come in. God chooses the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised in the world. He chooses even the things that are not. As Jesus put it in the very first line of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So listen, Gideon, you know, has his troubles, but there's one thing that he's got right, and this is what he has right, the essential poverty of his nature. I'm sure that there were some more obviously mighty and more obviously valorous warriors in the land, all of whom, from a certain way of looking at things, might have appeared to be better candidates than this frightened, tentative farmer in a hole. But God picks Gideon first, and he picks Gideon alone. Because under the rule of God... It is precisely in our weakness where his grace is made perfect. 
and Gideon will never be the same again. Now that he's opened up his hands and he's told the truth to the God he unknowingly is speaking with face to face, God can and he will work wonders with people who open their hands and admit that that's true. But I will be with you, God says, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And I hope that we can hear the good news in that. Here's how St. Augustine puts it. He says, love slays what we have been so that we can be what we were not. Love slays what we have been so that we can be what we were not. And church, to believe that means freedom. It means we are finally free. It means that for some of us, we can stop pretending that we have it together. We can stop pretending that we can make the pieces of our life fit together on our own. We can open our hands and we can tell the truth to God and to other people about being a mess. We can speak the truth about the essential poverty of our nature. It is freedom. For others of us here this morning, it may mean that believing that means that we have to ask God, please get me to the place where I can do that, where I can have that freedom to be able to say that that's true. But no matter which route we come, the promise of the gospel is true. Love meets us there in our weakness. And we will never be the same again. The life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus is the most clear expression of grace perfected in weakness and of the last becoming first that you and I will ever see. And he did that for us. And to follow him in repentance and faith is to be changed and to be grown to live the life that we have been called to live. To follow Jesus in faith is to have love slay what we have been so that we can become what we were not. And I love the little epilogue. You know, for Gideon, this sounds too good to be true. (laughs) So he literally cooks up this scheme to test its validity. I'm not sure exactly what he expected was going to happen when he brought this meal back to the guy under the tree. I'm not even sure um, how he thought this would verify what he had been told. But in the end, he absolutely gets it. He freaks out. He realizes what's been going on. And then God tells him, you're okay. And this once terrified and tentative man builds an altar that memorializes not only the God who met him, but the thing that God worked in his heart. The Lord, Gideon said, the Lord is peace. Let me pray for us. Father, work this in our hearts like you worked it in this tentative, scared farmer hiding in a hole. Father, help us to believe that you are indeed with us, that you do indeed love us, that you have given everything for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe that when we are doing really well and skating along nicely. And Father, help us to believe it when we suffer. 
Help us to believe it when we are in deep pain, when we feel chaos all around us. Help us to believe. And in turn, Father, lead us into this life that you have called us to live. Help us to move into the suffering and the pain that we see all around us with this good news. Father, do this for our good as individuals. Do this for our good as a church. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.